you're listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Good afternoon. My name is Nick Lipscomb, and I am a lay pastor at Sojourn Montrose. I wanted to start by letting you know that this is not a live recording of the sermon that I delivered last Sunday, March 26th, on the story of Zacchaeus. The audio recording at that time could not be recovered, and in an effort to give anyone who wants to listen an opportunity to hear what was said, that is why I am recording this from my office. So, to briefly recap, as I started this sermon, in Genesis 16, 7-13, we are told the story of Hagar, the concubine of Abraham, who bore Ishmael. And because of the poor treatment by his wife Sarah, Hagar flees and take refuge near a spring or well of water, and the Lord meets her there and blesses her. Hagar's response in verse 13 says, So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees me. For she said, Truly here have I seen him who looks after me. In both the Old and New Testament, God shows his character and establishes himself as a loving God who sees us, who knows our frame, who is intimate with our thoughts, worries, fears, and needs. We cannot hide, and therein lies a key juxtaposition. For those who are in Christ, we can breathe a sigh of relief and rest knowing that God sees us, and that he sees that we are sinners and yet still accepts us. For those of us who rest on our own laurels or on our own righteousness, We delude ourselves into thinking we aren't in need of grace, or if we fret over our own performance and constantly think about not being good enough, we live with the ever-prickling anxiety of being found out. The story of Zacchaeus is no exception. On Sunday, we had one fun little moment where we got to sing the nursery song or the Bible song about Zacchaeus. I won't sing it for you now, but I I will read the words because I think they're insightful. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And as the Savior passed that way, he looked up in the tree, and he said, Zacchaeus, you come down, for I'm going to your house today, for I'm going to your house today. I know it feels a little silly, or even like VeggieTales, to read or sing that song, but you can't miss the key line. He, Jesus, looked up in the tree and saw Zacchaeus, and then he called him to himself. The text start with some context. Verse 19.1 says, He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. Back in Luke 9.51, we are told, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Up until this point, Jesus has been moving about the country, teaching, preaching, healing, performing miracles, and he will continue to do that. But Luke is shifting his narrative to show that the next phase of Jesus' mission was about to ramp up, culminating in his ultimate purpose of death on a cross. However, Luke also makes it clear that while Jesus is turning his focus towards the climax of his mission, he is also intent on ministering to people along the way. In other words, he did have specific goals in mind while he was making that journey. Luke 10.1 says, The Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead, two by two, into very into every town and place where he himself was about to go. This means that, like heralds before a king, Jesus sent people to towns where Mary and Martha lived and Jericho. So it is reasonable to conclude 
that people like Mary, Martha, and Zacchaeus heard or knew that he was coming well before he even got there. It also shows that there were no chance encounters. From our human perspective, it may seem like these people sought Jesus out first, but the evidence shows that Jesus already had them in mind. Again, he is a God who sees, and it is that God who first comes to call us. So, what is the significance of Jericho? Many of you may recall Jericho of Old Testament fame, whose faith was sealed by Joshua and the Israelites. That city was actually destroyed. This Jericho, although close, is a totally different city. It was a major city, about 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem, and when it was built, it was redesigned as a Roman-style city, meaning it was certainly more secular than Jerusalem, and historians report that it had a city center, theater, stadium, huge pools, the like. It's also told that it was a sort of winter resort for King Herod because it was warm, and it sits at a much lower elevation than Jerusalem, and so therefore was an oasis city in the desert. It's actually described as the city of palm trees. Historians write that Jericho was likely a major toll collection point and trade center. The Jericho Road was a key commerce route, and for that reason, just like any major city today, that attracted the full gambit of demographics. So on that road, you would have had merchants, political elites, common travelers, criminals, poor, homeless people, religious authorities. This is the road that Jesus would take to get from Jericho to Jerusalem, and it was the setting for the Good Samaritan parable earlier in Luke's gospel. So regionally, this city was very strategically important for Rome and therefore certainly had a lot of political and social significance, but even more so economical significance. Okay, so why am I telling you this? Luke names the location in order to assign context and give authority to the profile of the man who would next be introduced. In Luke 19.2 it says, And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. Chief tax collector. So given what we know about Jericho's economic significance, we can be sure that Luke meant for us to conclude that Zacchaeus was likely a very big deal, not only in the Jericho scene, but also to Rome. We are for sure told that he is rich, and based on historical evidence, his role would have been what is known as a publican in ancient Roman societal structure. Publicans were tax collectors, or more directly, farmers of taxes, and particularly of toll taxes on trade routes. So again, that Jericho Road is a big deal. Also, they were likely engaged in public building projects. So think like a city manager. So this guy, Zacchaeus, was probably a well-known public figure. He was a business and commerce leader, and he was definitely hated by the Jews. Now you see, tax collectors were not popular, and they typically had to be either volunteered or forced into that role. Zacchaeus was a Jewish man, and therefore he was likely seen as a sellout, a traitor. He was probably an extortioner. He might have been guilty of peculation, which is illegally taking or using public money for personal gain. And this is why in the Gospels we see many times the title of tax collector thrown into the same broad category as sinners. Mark 2.16 says, And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? In Luke 7.34, it says, The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You get the picture. In effect, tax collectors by nature were as ritually unclean or impure as sinners in the eyes of their religious establishment, and by extension, 
were therefore avoided, hated, mistreated, whatever, by all. So let's continue with the text. So we know Zacchaeus is a rich public figure. What else do we know? Luke 19, 3-4 says, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Remember, based on what we read in Luke 10, people already knew that Jesus was coming. Zacchaeus probably got wind of this, and we aren't told exactly why he was seeking to see Jesus, but I suspect that word had gotten out what kind of man this Jesus was. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And granted, this is my opinion, but if I were a native of that land, and all my countrymen, brothers, sisters, hated me for my job and for what I had deceitfully done, I imagine that a fellow native man who was described as a prophet, who claimed to be God, and who was actively associated with my kind, would probably get my attention. Regardless, we are at least told he was seeking Jesus, and he was short. I do find it kind of funny that Luke includes this detail. I will not go into all the meanings of this phrase, small in stature, but based on context, not only could he not see through a crowd, he was likely unseen or more likely unacknowledged or avoided in a crowd in the sense that people probably wanted to not be with him at all costs. Like I said, they wanted to avoid him. So Zacchaeus would have been ignored or outright rejected. So what did he do? He climbed a tree. All right, now for the lesson in botany. And this is the part that I think is really cool. At first glance, I read this text, and the picture I had for sycamore trees was the North American Western Hemisphere variety. So think oak or maple tree. They're really tall. Now, how is a small man going to climb a tree like that? Further investigation revealed that this sycamore tree was actually a sycamore fig tree. Sycamore figs, if you look it up, look more like magnolia trees. They can get big, but their lowest branches are relatively close to the ground. So this was a tree that a short man could reasonably climb. This type of fig is actually referenced in the Old Testament in the prophet Amos. In chapter 7, verse 14, it says, I was no prophet or a prophet's son, but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs. Does this mention of the fig tree stand out to you? Does it ring any bells? Matthew 21, 18 through 19 says, In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. A similar account of this story occurs in Mark chapter 11, verse 12 through 14. And back in the Old Testament, in the prophet Habakkuk, chapter 3, 17a and 18, it says, Though the fig trees should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk writes about fruitless fig trees when he resolves to wait and trust in God's perfect justice after Judah and the surrounding nations showed great wickedness and rebellion. Going even further back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, we get the picture where Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit and sinned for the first time, and it says, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed, you guessed it, fig leaves together to hide themselves. The symbolism displayed in these verses and many others in the Bible is this. The fig tree represents a cursed and fallen Israel. 
What is meant to be a beautiful tree full of sweet fruit for the nations is empty and for all intents and purposes dead. A fruit tree that does not bear fruit is worthless. Jesus said so himself. The tree is sick, it is cursed, and without someone to tend to it, without someone to dress it, it will die. And make no mistake, Luke was intentional in this detail. Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree that biblically represents a curse, and by all accounts, as a man who has taken advantage of the people, who has defrauded them, who has been deceitful, this is where he belongs. This is where all sinners belong, because they're cursed. However, earlier in his account, Luke writes in chapter 13, verses 6 through 9, another take on the cursed fig. And it says, And he told this parable, A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then, if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Remember, this story is told after Jesus had already set his path towards Jerusalem, knowing that he would encounter a man on a fig tree. The sinner Zacchaeus climbs into a cursed tree, and holistically speaking, he should die there along with all others who have been stained by the curse. But Jesus has made himself clear. What if someone comes along and tends to that tree? What if someone fertilizes it? What if someone dresses it? What if someone saves it? Is there something or someone worth saving here? Might there yet be fruit? Is there hope for Zacchaeus? Luke answers this question for us. This sinful man is hoping, just hoping to see Jesus. He has heard about Jesus, and he may not know exactly what he is looking for, but he knows he wants even just a glimpse of him. And the God who sees looks up into that cursed fig tree and says, Zacchaeus, Hurry and come down, for my I must stay at your house today. Jesus has looked upon a barren tree and says, Wait! There may yet be a harvest. And how does Zacchaeus respond? So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. Me? You mean me? Me, the traitor? Me, the one who has defrauded? Me? The one who is hated by everyone else, who is unacknowledged and unseen, who is despised? You want me? That might have been Zacchaeus's response. Or maybe he just scampered on down that tree like a squirrel. Because Zacchaeus believed Jesus, he obeyed Jesus, and that is a man whose faith is counted as righteousness and whose faith has been rewarded. And note, he received Jesus joyfully before he actually makes amends, before he pledges to give away his money and his goods. He responds joyfully. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, and Luke wants to show us exactly the type of person that Jesus is seeking. And contrary to contemporary belief, it wasn't the religious elite, it wasn't the self-sufficient, it wasn't the morally good, the pretty, the polished, or the pure for whom Jesus was looking Prior to our encounter with Zacchaeus, Luke tells us two other important stories. First, Luke says in chapter 18, 9 through 14, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves 
that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like any other man, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem and telling these parables, knowing full well who is he's going to meet very soon. He's telling a parable about a tax collector and then is going to meet a tax collector in a fig tree. But even before that, Luke tells us about Jesus and the rich ruler. The rich ruler asked Jesus what he must do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus, after talking through the law, responds, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. The rich ruler becomes sad because he does not want to give up his riches and was sure of his own righteousness and how he kept the law. Jesus makes the comment about how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God, and the people witnessing this say, then who can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with men is possible with God. Jesus tells us that parable and gives us a clue as to whom he is seeking. He then meets two men in his travels, both whom are rich. One keeps the law, and it is clear that he rests upon his wealth and performance to gain acceptance. And his response is sadness. The other has cheated people, is hated by his countrymen, and although he is rich, knows there might be something more, maybe someone better to follow. And he responds in faith. One trusts in himself, and one joyfully comes down from a tree to see Jesus. Zacchaeus is choosing the good portion. He responds in faith, and his faith is rewarded. He is seen by and sees Jesus. And the thing is, Jesus doesn't stop there. True faith is marked with repentance. It is clear that Zacchaeus understands this. And what's more, in an outpouring of repentance and joy, Zacchaeus does some good works. Quote, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Paul writes in his letter to the Ephesians in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Zacchaeus repents of fraud and pays restitution because he has experienced the saving power of Jesus. And make no mistake, Zacchaeus was guilty of sin. He admits it himself. And so too was the rich ruler. Money ruled both of their hearts. But you may protest, is it fair that the ruler was told to give away all and Zacchaeus only had to give away half? The truth is, neither matter is justification. Without faith by grace, even if the rich ruler had given it all away, but still not trusted Jesus, if he had said, I give it all away, is that enough now? I've given everything I have away, will you accept me now? He still would have been lost. Having or not having money is not the test for righteousness, but where your treasure is, there your heart is also. 
practically speaking to our congregation, our gifts and tithes certainly keep the lights on, but our primary concern as your pastors is that your heart is investing in the kingdom. Our aim is to shepherd you towards Christ so that you would cherish him more than all other things. Our goal is that all of us would respond like Zacchaeus, receiving Jesus joyfully. And as we are sanctified by the Spirit in Christ, all else will follow. The good works will follow. Zacchaeus's acts were the sign of his sealed, genuine faith. So what is the actual difference between the rich ruler and Zacchaeus? It's a heart change. In fact, it's a new heart, an uncursed heart, a pure heart. The crowd that witnessed the conversation with the rich ruler knew, at least implicitly, that this change is surely impossible with man. How can man make a new heart for himself? But it is God himself who is reaching into our dead bodies and breathing his spirit of life into them. He makes the impossible possible, and the same rebirth occurs in all who believe, and this new heart establishes us, like Zacchaeus, as true sons and daughters of Abraham. As it says in Galatians 3, 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Now let us return to the figs. There is another story in which the fig is featured. In John 1, 44-51, it says, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. As we established earlier, the fig tree represents the curse. It represents Israel's failure to produce fruit. It is a curse against the false religious system in Israel, and all false religious systems for that matter. And as it stands, anyone who sits beneath or sits in the proverbial fig tree is cursed. Like Zacchaeus, it is the result of our poisoned souls. But we already know what happened with Zacchaeus, and we see Jesus calling Nathanael out from under the fig tree. Back in Deuteronomy 21:22 it says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a hanged man is cursed by God. Paul expounds on this concept in Galatians 3:13 and says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. We, like Zacchaeus, have carried our guilt and shame. We have defrauded our neighbors, we have been rejected by our family and friends, and we are unseen, discounted, and unacknowledged. And we rightly are counted amongst the tax collectors and sinners. Our place is in the sycamore fig. Our place is in the curse, where we desperately try to cover ourselves with worthless fig leaves. But oh, thanks be to God, that his son has considered us, tax collectors and sinners, his friends. And what a friend we have that looks up in the tree and sees us. He sees us, and our good shepherd, our herdsman, our true dresser of sycamore figs, has looked on us with deep love, compassion, and understanding, and has said he's commanded us to come down from that tree. Come down from the tree. The curse is no longer ours to bear. You have been freed. You have been redeemed. You are no longer condemned. 
Come down from that tree. No longer pay heed to your idols. Repent of your sins. Reject your love of money. Reject the labels that you have made for yourself and the labels that have been made about you. Come down from that tree. Do not trust in yourself and your own righteousness. Do not trust in your performance. Do not trust in your possessions or material riches. Do not believe the lies that our culture tells you. Choose the good portion. Come down from that tree. Christ has become the curse for us. And we no longer belong in the tree. When I was preparing for this, I read that the sycamore fig fruit only ripens if it's bruised. Christ took our place on that cursed tree and was broken and bruised on our behalf so that the righteousness of God would ripen at just the right time. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. If in faith you respond to Christ, and if in faith you receive him joyfully, if in faith you put on the new self, repent and believe, you are made new. You are made clean. You are made pure. You no longer bear the curse. And like Zacchaeus, you will see God. You will see God and you will be invited to feast with him just like we do every Sunday at the communion table. And by the way, do you know what the name Zacchaeus means? It means pure. It means clean. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And we saw that played out with Zacchaeus. In Micah 4, a prophecy is made about the latter days at the end of all things. Verse 1 says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And verse 4 says, They shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. The curse won't last forever. In fact, it has been lifted from us. And Jesus is not stopping there. No, he is actively working to make all things new. He is restoring the garden. He is taking away the shame of the fig leaves and planting new orchards. And oh, how beautiful it will be. There will be peace. There will be rest. And we will laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh while we joyfully behold our Savior's face. He's making all things new. Uncursed fig trees are being planted. And we are getting to share in that work. Finally, it says, The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Until the latter days have come to pass, if you hear these words and rejoice in the name of Christ, seek to join him in his work of restoration. Look for the lost in the fig trees. They may not be pretty, they may be unseen by the world. They may be small in stature and hated by many. They may look like work. But with the chief gardener guiding our hands, the chief dresser of figs tending that garden, we will joyfully participate in the harvest. And we will look forward to the day when each of us will sit beside living waters under the cool shade of a restored and uncursed tree where we will be fully seen by God and we will fully see him. Amen.